Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Pooler. My guest today is David Lombardo of Capital Press Room, and he's going to talk about the um, about Kathy Hochul ascension to the governor of New York State. So, David, thank you for being on Focus on Albany. I guess my first question would be, nobody was really taken by surprise that Cuomo resigned and Kathy Hochul became the new governor. What was your reaction to when it happened? Well, I think I was surprised by the timing of the governor's announcement. I think there was an expectation that the governor would try to stick around as long as possible, potentially through an impeachment process, um, but he clearly made a political calculation that it wasn't worth it to just hang on. All of his political allies had turned on him, and the only way out was out. And uh, when he made that decision, we watching it in real time, we were listening to his remarks, and you could hear this pivot coming, which was essentially him saying, while I never did any of this stuff that I'm accused of, despite the mountains of evidence, uh, my words, not his, I'm going to step away. And it was something that just became more and more real as we saw this pivot happening and and actually becoming reality. And I don't think it really dawned on us that this was something that was going to happen until Kathy Hochul really took that oath of office. Because even until uh, the final days of the governor's, Governor Cuomo's administration, he was acting almost like it was business as usual. He was holding press conferences about uh, the incoming storm. He was reiterating that I'm still the governor. And so it wasn't until we actually had that formal transition where it really sunk in that, wow, Kathy Hochul's the governor now. You know, I've watched politics for many, many years, and, and what's astounding to me, I don't know if it's astounding to other people, but there's been politicians, elected politicians, who, in my opinion, have done done things far worse than, than Cuomo. Do you think he was uh, shunned and, and vilified by his colleagues because he was not a very friendly person? What would you, what would you say to that? I think that for some people in the Democratic Party especially, it was easier for them to make the leap that Governor Cuomo needed to go because they did not like him personally. But I also think that he was able to stick around longer than he might have all the way through the investigation because of how much power he controlled in Albany. I think if we remember back to February when Lindsay Boylan came out with her you know, detailed account of her experience with the governor, and people were very reticent, uh, Democratic politicians were very reticent to actually condemn Andrew Cuomo. And this is, these are people who didn't necessarily like him, but I think were 
kind of afraid by what, of what political retribution he might be able to exert. And it wasn't until there were a number of people coming forward, uh, Charlotte Bennett, uh, Anna Ruck, uh, who got the ball rolling, and I think people were able to act on you know, what they felt was the right thing to do. So I think that the governor, yes, while the fact that he wasn't well-liked may have contributed to the way people responded to this, I think the amount of power that he commanded in Albany kind of negated that to a certain degree and kept people from acting in the way they might have otherwise have chosen to act in response to the claims of uh, misconduct against him. Uh, Ross Barkin had written that... um no other governor had as much power as uh, Robert Moses. Robert Moses ruled by fear also. There was not one elected official who had the backbone to stand up to him. And, you know, the uh, one person, um, Jane Jacobson, you know, she she's more or less invisible, Um because there's so many people that, you know, were intimida- intimidated by Cuomo, it, 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 it's just so amazing. Would you, would you say that the power that he wielded is comparable to the power that Robert Moses has? So with the caveat that Robert Moses is a little before my time, and I haven't made it all the way yeah, to right. the Power Broker, the uh, Robert Caro book uh, that uh, documents Moses's time really just running New York State, I would say that it's fair to describe Governor Andrew Cuomo as one of the most powerful figures in New York State history. He built up what's been described by some as the imperial governorship, and unlike Moses, though, he was an elected figure. He was accountable to voters, which makes it almost more impressive the way he was able to wield power and get what he wanted through Albany for more than 10 years. I mean, he You have to give him credit for the way he muscled policies through the legislature and a legislature that wasn't necessarily willing to go along with it because of the Republican control of the state Senate, albeit a Republican control that, you know, some blame on the governor. But, you know, going back to the early days of, say, marriage equality in 2011, that was something that a Democratic majority uh, in the Senate hadn't been able to get done during the Patterson administration. But here, Governor Andrew Cuomo was able to, you know, give cover to some four Republican senators so that they actually had the votes to get that done. So, you know, that was an example of his legislative maneuvering. And then you just have some of the uh, infrastructure projects, these big ticket things, these legacy projects, much like the Mario Cuomo Bridge, uh, the overhaul of some of the airports down in New York City. These are things that basically got done by force of will, uh, will alone, whereas you know, previous governors had been hamstrung by essentially the norms of the past or simply held up by the status quo. This was somebody who didn't let the status quo bother him and, you know, understood how to exercise power and had no problem doing so. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that he is 
the most powerful governor in modern times, and you have to go back to someone like Rockefeller or uh, Moses to find someone who even came close in terms of the power that they wielded. So, um, Mario Cuomo was a little bit before your time, but I'm sure you've uh, done research and read about Mario Cuomo. Yep. And it's it's interesting from my perspective how much of Andrew Cuomo did 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 he get from his father? In other words, all the stuff that he did and acted upon, do you think he learned all that stuff from his father? Because I think it's pretty, pretty interesting. I think a lot of the rhetorical flourishes that Andrew Cuomo demonstrated in his speechifying and kind of his vision of New York in terms of this you know, grand place uh, stems from his father, but also stems from trying to build on and exceed his father's legacy. I think, you know, playing armchair psychologist for a second, it seems like this was someone who saw himself in the shadow of his father. And one of the ways he could exceed or get out of that shadow was by getting elected to a fourth term, something his father couldn't do, something he ended up not being able to do. I mean, he didn't even serve now as long as his father. His father got three full terms. Andrew did not. Um, you know, some people say that Andrew was more intense than his father, more calculating than his father. I mean, he's you know, the evil prince, the prince of darkness from Mario Cuomo's campaigns back in the day. And mm-hmm. you know, some people say this is a ruthlessness that he and he alone shared. Other people say it's just a side of Mario Cuomo that was better hidden and no, uh, was basically carried out by other people on his behalf, whereas Andrew Cuomo had no problems you know, getting his hands dirty or being seen as the person getting his hands dirty. So, I mean, I view a lot of this stuff through the prism of Andrew Cuomo's relationship with his father, but maybe that's you know, putting a little too much of a you know, Shakespearean twist on everything that happens in Albany. Maybe not, though, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. You know, we are products of our parents to a large degree. Now, um, it's just recently that the IBC was disbanded, the uh, um, with Jeff Klein as the, the leader. Mm-hmm. And now that there's no more Jeff Klein, there, I mean IDC, there's only one um, member left. Diane Savino, had the had the IDC still been in existence, do you think all this stuff that happened to Cuomo would not have happened? In other words, you know, he was kind of comfortable with the Republican state Senate as his father was. So, if the Republican if the IDC was still in existence. And those were votes, you know, in favor of Cuomo. Do you think that Cuomo would have felt that he could have weathered this storm in the um, state senate and remained governor? Um, I think it's hard to forecast what the dynamic would have been like, largely because 
So what we saw in 2018 was six of the eight independent Democratic conference members, the IDC members, lost their seats. And they lost their seats to very uh, progressive uh, lawmakers who right. contributed to a move to the left uh, in the legislature as a whole. So if they don't win, then you know maybe you don't see as much headway by progressive Assembly Democrats as well in 2020. We see the winning of Democratic Socialists in 2020. So I, I think that that 2018 headway definitely changed the makeup of the state legislature, which made the legislative leaders more inclined to be responsive to concerns about Cuomo's conduct. That being said, we have 43 Democrats in the state Senate right now. Let's say all eight of them were members of the IDC. That would still leave 35 you know, traditional mainline Democrats who would be you know, likely to say that Andrew Cuomo needed to go. But I also think we need to remember that the IDC essentially folded prior to their members losing. It was back in the spring of 2018, and the eight members of the IDC uh, rejoined the fold. They became part of the mainline Democratic conference. So I think they were heading that way. I think they saw the writing on the wall, and even if they had been able to hold on to their seats, I think they would have had to be more responsive to this movement uh, on the left regardless. So I, I, I think that this outcome would have happened as well, Governor Cuomo resigning, but maybe it might have taken a little more time. So now, as of this recording, Kathy Hochul has been governor for a week, and by the time we get, we get on the air, it'll be two weeks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody is you know, interested to see what's going to happen, and it won't be too much longer before other candidates might be coming out of the woodwork to challenge her. So I think that Kathy Hochul's honeymoon honeymoon period will be short. Um, Do you think, from your perspective, do you see much of a challenge from the left? Because Governor Hochul is kind of a centrist. Do you see a, a, a definite challenge on the left um, for the nomination for governor in 2022? I think it's inevitable that at least one Democratic politician to Governor Hochul's left will come forward and challenge her. I think what remains to be seen is will there be a whole slate of progressive politicians who move forward and will there be any really serious contenders who move forward with a challenge to her left? Because if there are, just say, a handful of no-name progressives or relative lightweights who come forward, they're just going to be essentially nipping at her heels, and it's not going to cause her any sort of significant uh, worries uh, come June and then the primary. But I think if the progressive left can rally behind one big name, then I think they can make Kathy Hochul sweat a little bit. For example, Jumani Williams, the New York City public advocate, Mm -hmm. ran against Hochul in 2018 for the lieutenant governor primary, because the governor and lieutenant governor run separately. You know, he could theoretically give her a hard time, but I also think there's a limit to how far he 
could push her in a Democratic primary, even one-on-one. And I think it would have to come down to somebody like Letitia James, the state attorney general, who would have the gravitas to potentially beat Hochul in a primary uh, coming from Hochul's left. So you think the field uh, amongst the heavyweights is pretty wide open, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there are a lot of heavyweights who are going to emerge, though. I don't think, you know, people talk about, like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I don't think there's, I think that's almost a minuscule chance that she runs. I don't think we're going right. to see uh, Tom DiNapoli step in. I don't think we're going to see uh, Kirsten Gillibrand step in. We're not going to have Governor Cuomo mounting a comeback, uh, I think, which leaves just these people who are kind of second tier, um, Bill de Blasio, Jumani Williams, you know, while they may be known in progressive circles, these are not necessarily people who are well-known throughout New York State or even necessarily popular throughout New York State or necessarily within the Democratic Party, uh, which is what really will be the test if you're trying to get that Democratic nomination. So if I'm Kathy Hochul, I have to feel pretty good about my chances right now as opposed to if Andrew Cuomo was still governor, and you know, I think then there would have been a just a mad rush of candidates throwing their hat in the ring. Whether it's county executives like Steve Ballone on Long Island or George Lattimore in Westchester County, and I don't think a lot of these people, these more centrist candidates, are going to get in the field. So I think it's Kathy Hochul's to lose. What about um, Senator Biagi? I don't consider her a serious threat to Kathy Hochul for the Democratic nomination for governor. Do you think she would have been a more serious threat to Andrew Cuomo? Uh, not necessarily in a one, not necessarily in a crowded field. I don't think she could have emerged, and I also think even one on one, I think she would have had a, a lot of trouble with. Governor Cuomo, even with all the scandals that were going on, I think he would have been relying very heavily on labor support. He would have relied heavily on uh, voters of color with the Democratic Party. Um, Granted, I think if it had been her versus him after the AG's report, she could have won, but I don't think that she would have had the field to herself. I think that other people would have gotten in the field. So I don't think there was really ever a scenario where she'd have a one-on-one primary against Andrew Cuomo. So what kind of legislation do you see enacted in um, Kathy Hochul's first year? Well, you you talked about her as a a centrist Democrat, and I think that's what she is. She describes herself as a Biden Democrat. You know, her grandparents, I think she says, were FDR Democrats. And I think what that means in a practical sense is that she would tend to support policies and legislation that Andrew Cuomo supported. He himself, you know, while protesting that he was a progressive, was really a centrist Democrat. And I think the Mm -hmm. only reason we're going to see her maybe tacked a little bit more to the left is because of that primary coming up. So I think she's going to try to find a couple headlining issues that would appeal to the progressive voters that she can rally behind, whether that's some sort of criminal justice reform, um, whether it's some other stalled issues, uh, maybe on climate change, 
where she can say, look, I've you know got these liberal bona fides and I'm acting on them. But for like Democrats who think that she's going to, say, adopt uh, the New York State Health Act, which has to do with single-payer health insurance, basically a state takeover of private health insurance, I don't think she's necessarily going to be gravitating towards something like that, uh, partially because the Democratic majorities in the legislature aren't super excited about that. But you, you could have something like the Clean Slate Bill, which is designed to give formerly incarcerated New Yorkers a second chance uh, at a, at a, at a quote-unquote clean slate by wiping their records, sealing their records, so that it doesn't uh, hinder their ability to find employment and uh, find housing. You know, that could be something that she might uh, decide is enough of a liberal measure to make her look good on the left, but also not too far to the left. And I think we'll also see this in her spending priorities. I think she'll, you know, gravitate towards... Uh, a progressive tax structure. I think she'll gravitate towards high spending on entitlement. Uh, I mean, those aren't necessarily the most difficult political decisions, but I think they will reinforce uh, her appeal to the liberal base that she's going to be thinking about come June 2022. Four years ago, uh, three years ago, I'm sorry, um, Andrew Cuomo wasn't happy with... Kathy Hochul on the ticket. Uh, I don't remember who Andrew Cuomo had in mind to replace him, Kathy Hochul. Do you remember? I don't think that there were any significant names that were popping up. Uh, I do do remember 2018 and how he was trying to push her into running for a congressional seat that was essentially – unwinnable. I mean, it was her former seat, but it had been redistricted and redrawn to become more conservative. And she just was not going for it in any way, shape, or form. There had been some rumors that uh, if Brian Higgins, who represented a nearby congressional Mm -hmm. seat, had decided not to run, she might have taken the leap for that one. I think he was looking for someone who was more in line with his mindset, the way he approached the job, um, which definitely wasn't her. I mean, she hasn't been shy about saying, I mean, after the fact, at least after his downfall, that they weren't close. And, you know, they weren't necessarily uh, confidants the way it seemed like while Bob Duffy, the first lieutenant governor, didn't have a big portfolio or much to do, he did seem to enjoy a better rapport with Andrew Cuomo, and for whatever reason, Andrew didn't seem to have that with Kathy. Right, exactly. You know, going back to Mary Cuomo, um, Mary Cuomo's first lieutenant governor was uh, Alfred Del Bello, and then uh, Alfred Del Bello left, and Stan Lundin became the uh, lieutenant governor, and Stan Stan Lundin was pretty loyal, and he stuck by Cuomo, and after uh, Mary Cuomo left, nobody really heard about Stan Lundin. Um, So it's it's pretty interesting to think back, you know, in New York State history, think about the past and, and, and what's going on now. So let's talk a little bit about you. You're on uh, Capitol Press Room. 
Uh, but you have a uh, career in journalism. Tell us a little about a little bit about yourself and you know um, Capital Press Room and what you did before. So I've been bouncing around from a lot of different uh, jobs in the uh, Capital orbit. I really got my start in 2009 with the Legislative Gazette, which was a student-run newspaper, essentially, based out of the Capitol. And I began that on the day of the Senate coup in 2009, and that was kind of what got me hooked on state government. I didn't really understand what was happening on June 8, 2009, but I thought it was cool and people were very excited. And uh, from there, I got a part-time job with the Daily Gazette, which I eventually turned into a full-time job of covering the state capitol for them. And from there, I then did some communications work, including working for a member of the Assembly, Angela Santa Barbara. And then uh, from there, I went and worked for New York State Watch, which is an online outlet that is primarily used by lobbyists and other government affairs professionals to keep track of all the inside baseball in Albany. And it, it was at that job where I really discovered the legislative process, how it really works, because we spend a lot of time there sitting in committee meetings, sitting in hearings. And then from there, I jumped to the Times Union, where I got into the the podcasting game more seriously, started the Capital Confidential podcast, and actually things coming full circle, I did a series on the Senate coup there, this whole you know 10-year look back, seven-part series, which was a lot of fun. But then when the Capitol press room opening uh, popped up in the fall of 2019 when Susan Arbetter moved on to Capitol Tonight, I saw it as a chance to test uh, out this medium a little bit more, something that I had been enjoying, these long-form interviews. And I left. They took me on. Uh, so now for nearly two years, I've been host of the Capitol Press Room, trying to put my own stamp on it. And uh, you can hear us in the Capital Region every day, every weekday at 5 on 88.3 FM. The show is also available as a podcast, wherever you download your podcast. You can find us uh, online at capitalpressroom.org. And, you know, just trying to have in-depth and uh, unique and interesting conversations with policymakers and also just highlighting some stories from state government that aren't necessarily getting the same amount of attention in more of the traditional outlets covering the Capitol, whether it's the resurgence of Lake Sturgeon or talking to the prosecutor who led the effort to convict Sheldon Silver, just having an in-depth conversation with them. We just really try to peel back layers and give people you know, even more insight into state government than they otherwise would have. Now, do you choose the subjects, or is it a collaborative effort? So we try to do what's called enterprise journalism, you know, try to have uh, our stories reflect uh, unique things that you can't get anywhere else, in which case that's me sort of leading the charge for who we're going to have on. But a lot of our coverage is also just predicated on what the news of the day is. You can't help you know, doing a story about the new lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin, because that's what people really want to hear sometimes. So some of our mm-hmm. coverage is just based on, on that, you know, responding to the headlines, responding to uh, what, you, what we press releases end up in our inbox. And then my producer and I, uh, my producer Peter Wendler, uh, and I talk about 
uh, some other uh, ideas, things that we think aren't necessarily getting enough attention, voices that we think aren't getting enough attention, and try to highlight them as well. So it, it's a collaborative process, but I will say it's fair to say that I'm driving the bus. So uh, your your program is is uh, heard all over the state, right? Yep. Yeah, we're syndicated on stations all over New York, and we're also available uh, on the weekend in New York City. That's terrific. So you've been listening to Dave, David Lombardo from Capital Press Room. I'm Cynthia Pooler. This is Focus on Albany. If you like this show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. David, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to talking with you again. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a wonderful day.